This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we're joined by special guest Keith Simon, co-author of Truth Over Tribe. He graduated from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and co-planted The Crossing, a politically diverse church where he is the co-lead teaching pastor. He hosts a podcast by the same name, Truth Over Tribe, and teaches on 10-minute Bible talks. Keith is married to Christine, and they have four children. Keith, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. That was kind of the official biography you gave me there. I appreciate it. Yeah, I basically stole that from your book. So please add to that as I'm you... I'm more interesting than that biography makes it sound. So. I, I would hope. Yeah, no, I'm sure you are. <laughs> that, that's pretty vanilla, but I do appreciate being here with you guys. I uh, really like what you guys are doing and I'm ju- looking forward to a good conversation. And we're missing today. We just had some mishaps and an inability, an inability to reschedule, but we're missing kind of your your partner in crime here on this book, Patrick. Maybe you could even tell us a little bit about uh, him and and who helped you co-write this book. Yeah, Patrick and I wrote the book together. We share an office. We're both pastors at the same church. We share an office together. I'm Gen X. He's a millennial. I'm public school. He's private school. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that talks to the ordinary person, and he's the kind of guy that can kind of talk to the ordinary person, but also, you know, speaks in Latin and does a lot of other crazy stuff. So, uh, you know, one time he put out on Twitter, he was looking for recommendations for a a good translation of Plato to read. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is so stereotypical of what everybody already thinks about you. The best translation of Plato? I mean, come on, man. Just be normal for once. But he's a great guy, smart and uh, gifted. And we got to write the book together. And it's been a fun journey. Good. It's awesome. Uh, well, maybe you can also talk about uh, how you know about Bama, what made you reach out to us, yeah, and so on. It's a good story. I have four kids, or maybe I should say my wife and I have four kids, and our youngest is 20. He's a student at the University of Missouri, and he's, like all my kids, thankfully, are following Jesus and into their faith. He's into learning and growing and reading his Bible and spending time with other guys doing the same thing, and one time we were just visiting about some of the stuff they were reading and and, and uh, discussing. And he said, well, one thing we've gotten into is this podcast that we heard about. And I'm like, well, what's that? And he's like, well, it's this place called Bama. You may not be familiar with it. And I wasn't. And so, you know, if your kid tells you he's listening to some new Bible mm. podcast, <laughs> if you're a pastor of a church like me, what do you do? Well, you go check it out, right? You're like, who are these people? <laughs> and so I started listening to some of your stuff and I really loved it. And I was really glad that my son and his buddies were uh, listening in and following along with what you're doing. So I, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, your whole ministry and what you're trying to do over there, the kind of conversations you're having around the Bible and around truth. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. I love, I love hearing from parents that their, their children have turned them on to the podcast or made that. That's, that's why we do what we do. And that I love, I just love that. It's, finds a special space in my heart whenever I hear that. But so you, you wrote this book that released uh, recently, Truth Over Tribe. Can you tell us a little bit about um, this new work and what what was the impetus that caused you to write it? What was the fire or the, you know, the fire in your bones, the the heartbeat that made this thing a reality? I mean, this is no, <laughs> this, so this Truth Over Tribe, you're going to talk about politics and ideologies and our political tribes. And this is, this is not light 
This is not the easy book. Like, this is not the book you write in order to, like, play it safe. Well, you're right. And I, I appreciate that, that you're willing to say that we're trying to tackle a tough, sensitive uh, issue. But I don't think we had a choice. I mean, what mm-hmm. we were seeing in our church, now we live in a university city. Uh, it's a blue dot in the middle of a very red state. And so we are a very politically diverse town. And therefore, our church is very politically diverse. And my friend and I, we co-planted the church back in 2000. And for the first 15 or so years, everything went smoothly. I mean, in the sense that people who are Democrats, Republicans, or politically homeless or libertarians or whatever, all worship together and it was no big deal. Well, then 2016 comes along. And in the following years, including in the pandemic, we started noticing the fracturing that was happening outside the church was also happening inside the church. And all of a sudden, we saw that people were pushing back against us for uh, political reasons, Mm. but it didn't quite make sense to us. And it took us a long time to figure it out. What's happening? Like one thing, for example, we noticed is that uh, for the first 15 or so years, people would come and try to figure out if our church was a good fit for them. And they would ask questions about the Bible. They might ask controversial questions about God's sovereignty and human freedom, or they might ask about baptism you know, some of the more uh, spicy topics, but there would always be kind of Bible-oriented questions. But then all of a sudden, people started coming and asking a different kind of question. Mm. Uh, They were asking about Black Lives Matter, or they were asking about vaccines or President Trump. Or, and we're like, well, what is happening here? And again, it takes a while sure. to notice. It doesn't just happen one day. And so Patrick and I were in our office and we were just kind of trying to figure this out, sort through it, just like all the other pastors at our church were. And all of a sudden, I, I think we said, look, it's just everybody's fracturing into these tribes as, as if we just need to kind of put truth over tribe. And when we said it, we're like, hang on a second, I think that is exactly what we need to do, that people have taken their tribal loyalties and they have elevated them and given them supreme allegiance. And in this case, we're talking about political loyalties. So when we wrote this book, we're really in our mind, we're fighting for the soul of our church, for the soul of American evangelicalism. I don't want to over-dramatize that. There's a lot of great stuff that needs to be talked about out there, but, and there's a lot of great books that deal with this subject. We're not the only people talking about it, but I do think that this is a crucial central issue. Are we going to be politicized as Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, or are we going to give our a loyalty and our allegiance and let to, to the donkey and the elephant and to let social media and political news, uh, cable news pundits corrupt our faith? Or are we going to have our loyalty in King Jesus? That That's the ultimate question that we want to wrestle with. And we want to call people back to a, a loyalty to Christ over the donkey or the elephant. So in light of uh, our timing on all of this, uh, as, as people are listening to this, it comes out December 29th. So we're a little bit removed from the election at that point. Uh, as we record, though, we're only the day after the election. Um, so as we record, there's a lot we still don't know about the results. Um, but at the end of the day, it shouldn't really matter necessarily um, because the whole point is it doesn't matter who wins. Our allegiance lies elsewhere. Um, but in, in light of that timing, I mean, maybe maybe you have some response to that. But also just your book has been out on public release for a month now. And what is, what is the response that you've seen so far? Like, I would imagine it's one thing when you're 
talking to your church body. They know you, you have a lot of social capital with those people, but now you have this wider audience of people reading the book. What has that response been like? Is there anything um, that's particularly encouraging or concerning or, you know, just, just talk to me about the response um, from the, from the wider audience. Yeah. Good questions. And a lot there. So if I forget some of it, let's go back to it. Cause I, I, yeah. I, I think we <laughs> should talk about, about all that. that, but <laughs> you're right. Today's the day after the election and the people that I'm seeing and talking with on text threads or in social media, uh, you know, it's a wide variety of responses. Some people are really happy with the way it turned, the election turned out. Some people are really disappointed. Some people are just kind of waiting it out. But I, I saw this uh, tweet on election day on yesterday. It was put out by the New York Times and it said, there are five, here are five ways to soothe election stress. Okay, so the New York Times thinks that their readers need to soothe their election stress. And there's little descriptions about each of them. I won't read them, but here are the five. Five finger breathing, whatever that is, Cooling down. Now, this one is plunging your face into a bowl of ice water for at least 15 to 30 seconds, moving around, breathing like a baby, and limiting your scrolling. Now, oh my gosh, the, this is the level of anxiety that people have, that they are having to do breathing exercises in order to take in election results. They they need to put their head in the cold water in order to calm themselves down. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you would think that's like a spoof, like maybe the Babylon Bee wrote that or something. But no, literally the New York Times. Now, your heart has to go out to people who have so much of their personal identity, so much of their hope and their future is riding on who won an election. Now, I, I get it, I guess. It's still sad no matter who it is, but I, I somewhat get it, I guess, if, if you don't know Christ. But if you're a Christ follower... I don't think uh, that we should deal with anxiety that way. And I don't think we should have that much anxiety over who wins the election. Now, I think elections matter. I hope Christians vote and I hope they take their their biblical convictions and their Christian conscience into the voting booth with them. I would never dream to tell people who to vote for. That's between them and God, right? But I think Christians should vote. And I think elections matter because elections is the way we have politicians and political uh, policy are one way that we can love our neighbor. But ultimately, it, it is true that Jesus is king and that uh, presidents come and go. Presidents don't have ultimate power. And that, that's one reason God tells us to pray for the president and these totalitarian regimes don't want people to do that. They squash churches because when you tell people to pray for the president, what it does is it says presidents aren't preeminent, that there's an authority above them that that mm-hmm. president has to give an accounting to. Mm-hmm. And it says God is on his throne. So if God can work in the church through a Roman emperor, you know, during the Roman empire, if he can work uh, during Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Persia, if he can work, uh, you know, while uh, uh, the communist party runs China, and yet the church is exploding and growing, then then I think God is going to be able to work in his people, no matter if we have team red or team blue in charge for the next few years. Yeah, I, I really like the last half of what you just said there as well. Like that was a really, that was, that was well said and timely in our comments because I've become aware of how many of my positions are are abstract and come from my place of, of privilege. I've been watching, you know, um, comments on social media about... Uh, just how the people like teachers are impacted or how this group or that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that identity is impacted by it. These are real decisions that really matter. And this morning I'm also reading through the apostolic fathers, you know, reading about some of these tales of, 
of martyrs and there's this collision of these things deeply matter. We have mm-hmm. some wonderful civil realities that we get to be a part of. We get to vote. We get mm-hmm. to uh, we get to dive into all that stuff and do all the things that we ought to do. And then when it's done, Christianity Christianity has this long storied history of having a really awkward relationship with empire. Mm-hmm. Um but but we have a we have a much different I'll let that segue into my next question. You have a you have a quote here on page 89 of my copy says Jesus tribe is the only tribe that is literally open to everyone. Of course our allegiance to Jesus will relativize our allegiance to all other tribes of the world. Of course it will change us, but this is the only club that has no prerequisites or pre-qualifications, King Jesus simply calls you to turn from your old allegiances and give your ultimate allegiance to him. This deeply offended the tribal coalitions of Jesus' day. They wanted him to pick a side. Jesus, are you a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a Roman sympathizer, a zealot, or an Essene? I, I think our leaders are, our, our listeners are going to love hearing that. That's very <laughs> Bema-y. Uh, but he refused to join their tribes. He infuriated them by calling people from every group to follow him. He called Matthew the Roman sympathizer and tax collector. He called Simon the zealot committed to guerrilla warfare against Rome. He called prostitutes to be his disciples, Pharisees like Nicodemus, wealthy women like Joanna, and social bottom dwellers like Bartimaeus. This is the beauty of Jesus's tribe. It's for everyone, and it's for everyone. That was just one of my favorite quotes from the book. And it seems as though, uh, Keith, the evidence would tell us that we we generally, as a Christian subculture, we don't find our primary like our primary identity in the Jesus tribe. We like to use the Jesus identity as an add-on to the things that we have a greater allegiance to. Would would you agree with that assessment, or would you have a more? I can often be very critical. Maybe you have a more generous perspective, <laughs> but speak to that if you don't mind. Yeah, I think that. One of the questions is, is tribalism in itself bad? Mm. Um, And I think the answer to that is no, at least not in the Garden of Eden it wasn't. Mm. I mean, tribalism or the – and try to define that a little bit more is is just the the ability to work together in a community. People who are tribal are people who have a common interest and they want to work together to advance that interest. So on a Mm -hmm. harmless level, you might think of an athletic team and a sports team and the – people who follow that team might be that team's tribe. But because sin has corrupted all things, what you find is that outside the Garden of Eden, the tribes can do good and bad. So tribes can build civilizations, uh, but tribes can also build the Tower of Babel. Uh, tribes can can uh, uh, build a civilization, but it can also build Auschwitz. Mm. And, and, and mm. so tribalism can get ugly pretty quick, especially when you get into political tribalism, because what happens is, is it gives us a sense of moral superiority. It gives us a sense of self-righteousness that we are better than them. We get to play the role of the Pharisee in Luke 18 and look down at the tax collector, not for being a tax collector, but for being of the other political party that we're not, for not being as enlightened as we are. And that's pretty dangerous because tribes encourage us uh, to put up boundaries and to say, who's in and who's out and what you have to do to be a part of our tribe. And sometimes what you have to do is you can't criticize anybody in the tribe. You just have to go along lockstep with everything a Republican or a Democrat says. If you try to step out of line, they will have their own ways of squashing you. 
so Jesus's tribe is totally different. Like people say, can we just not be a part of a tribe? And we go, well, I don't know that that's really possible. I think all of us are hardwired to be tribal to some extent. The key is what tribe are you going to be in? And when you're in Jesus's tribe, then that is a radically different kind of tribe because everyone is invited and there's no ability to look down on others. And here's a really big point is that Jesus's tribe is taught by uh, their their Lord, their King, their Savior, to make sacrifices for those outside the tribe, mm. to love those outside the tribe, to uh, die to themselves so that others might have life. So Jesus, Jesus has a tribe. I want to be a part of his tribe. It's just a radically reorientation of the way tribalism is thought of in our modern world. So uh, I... I I do think you're right that we as Christians are letting our tribal loyalties to lesser things uh, supersede our tribal loyalty to Jesus. So, I mean, I think the the uh, the example you brought up there in from the paragraph of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the ta- tax collector is perfect. Mm-hmm. Here's Matthew who has sold out his countrymen to go in a sense be a traitor and work for Rome mm-hmm. collecting taxes for the oppressive empire. And here's Simon who at least is someone who uh, is is comfortable with guerrilla warfare, at least hates Rome. And then later on after Jesus, you had the Sicarii men who are using violence to overthrow Rome or, or at least make an attempt to do so. And, and so what, what, what you have are people from two different, very different political perspectives that Jesus calls to follow him. And he puts them in a group together. Now, that doesn't mean that Simon and Matthew automatically kind of hugged it out and agreed on everything. I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure they had a lot of arguments around the campfire late at night. But what it did mean is that they both saw that you could follow Jesus and come from a different political perspective. And that'd be huge right now if we could just acknowledge that you can be wrong, but you're not wicked if you're on the other side. Like, you could be wrong, but you could still be a Christian. You could still try to be as faithful Christian and vote for someone different than I did. That would be a huge step. But then they had to also, Simon and, and Matthew also had their tribal loyalties to Rome and to, you know, overthrowing Rome. I had them relativized by Jesus and said, Jesus is uh, more important than either of these other loyalties. So he, he pledged allegiance to Jesus. And and I, I think if that's what Christians should do, I'm not trying to say Christians can't be involved in the political process. I think it's totally fine. I don't think everybody has to be, but I think it's fine. We have biblical models of that from Daniel to Joseph to uh, uh, others, Nehemiah. But but I do think that that if Christians are going to be a part of it, they can't be a part of it in the way that the uh, uh, Republicans, Democrats demand you to. You got to be a part of it in a way that honors Jesus first, and then you could be a Republican second or a Democrat second, or maybe not even second, maybe like 10th, you know, but but for sure not first, or for sure not above Jesus. Well, and I, I think about the Simon and Matthew relationship. And one of the things that strikes me is there's a ground floor to that journey. Like, it's one thing to say post-resurrection, spirit-filled community, they figured out how to not just become this uniform, but they found out how, they, they discovered how to have unity, and I'm assuming still have very diverse views about the world. Mm-hmm. But But they also understood this from day one, like pre-resurrection, like on the day they were called, they still understood what it meant to say, well, I'm following the rabbi right now, so I may kill you in four years later, but, <laughs> but I'm at least right now in this space going to, and, and, I, and I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Like this isn't some miraculous, there is like a 
some level of relational self-control and understanding what it means to follow a Jesus that we're might, that's still changing us and still changing our hearts. There's a basic level of human decency that even a zealot and a tax collector figured out day in and day out, seven days a week over the course of a few years. And I, I find that to be pretty instructive. Yeah, and if you just listen, it sounds as if some people think that in the realm of politics, it's okay to do away with what you say is common decency or as Christians, we might call uh, the fruit of the spirit. Mm. You know, like in politics, you have to play hardball. In politics, you might have to lie. In politics, you might have to kind of undermine uh, gossip, do some things that we know aren't right, but but it's politics and it's it's probably okay in politics, right? Well, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think the fruit of the spirit it's supposed to be something that's born in our life, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, whether we're in politics or in the church, whether we're at work or on the ball field or at the sports stadium, the fruit of the Spirit goes with us everywhere because the Holy Spirit goes with us everywhere. So I, I, I think that, that, that sometimes Christians have given themselves an excuse or a hall pass mm. on practicing the fruit of the Spirit because it doesn't seem to go well with the political moment. But I, I have a feeling that God is displeased uh, when we kind of make that deal, a willingness to give up the fruit of the Spirit in the realm of politics. Ooh, well said. So when I started reading the book, you had me hooked so bad from the very first line, <laughs> which was something to the effect of, uh, I would I would take a cinnamon roll from the devil. Absolutely. I love me a good cinnamon roll. Oh man. I my I get my my wife makes cinnamon rolls for my birthday every year. Oh, like wow. that is yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Um, and I, I just love that idea uh, that you guys sent cinnamon rolls to um, the teachers in the pandemic. And I think there's something about food in general, like cinnamon rolls are particularly special to me, uh, maybe not as much to others, but um, food in general is that way. And I, I would just wonder if there are any other stories like that, um, things that you've used to break down barriers and start conversations yeah. Um, that you can share, like, you know, methods, whatever. Yeah, we have tried to uh, overcome tribalism inside our own church because every church deals with this, in including our own, uh, this political tribalism. We've tried to overcome it in relationship between our church and the community uh, as well by trying to practice radical generosity uh, to the people inside and outside of our church. So let me tell the cinnamon roll story uh, when the pandemic started, there was a local ministry that we work with called Love Columbia. And one of the uh, things that they did is they had a, a coffee shop called Love Coffee that sold, of course, coffee and cinnamon rolls. And one of the cool things about that ministry is it hired people with disabilities. And so when the pandemic hit, it, they were going to have to shut down. They just couldn't keep the business up and all these people are going to lose their job. And so we're like, well, what could we do? Maybe we could just buy like a lot of cinnamon rolls, but then what are we going to do with all those cinnamon rolls? <laughs> so we're like, well, what we could do is we could send them to teachers who, you know, were trying to figure out how to teach and the whole pandemic, they were on the front lines at the beginning. And so that's what we did. Every few weeks, we would send an email out and we would say, hey, we're going to send cinnamon rolls and to all your staff and teachers and everybody and just say, thanks for all you're doing. And it was going really well. Teachers were posting on social media, thanks to the crossing for these cinnamon rolls. And we were saying, hey, thanks to you for, all you're doing. And then all of a sudden we got an email from a principal who said, yeah, we don't want your cinnamon rolls. 
And I'm like, well, you don't want our cinnamon rolls. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'll just eat them then. And then I'm like, oh, we have a lot of cinnamon rolls at that school. We gotta come, <laughs> we gotta have another thought. And so, uh, so what happens is if you say that to me that, that we don't want your cinnamon rolls because we don't like your church and we aren't comfortable with your church giving us cinnamon rolls, which is kind of the story behind why they said no is that they were, I had heard some things about our church that they, uh, didn't care for. Well, what happens is, is that instead Instead of me getting mad at you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to be your friend. Uh, not in a weird, gross way, but just in a way that says, I bet you if we know each other, we're going to like each other. And it's easy to uh, demonize people you don't know. So I just sent this guy a couple emails and finally we figured out a time that we could get together and we just ate lunch at a pizza joint here in town. And we're just talking and hanging out and it's, conversation's easy. He seems like a great guy. And uh, we got to the great cinnamon roll controversy and he had had some time to do some work on uh, his part to find out more about our church and he realized we weren't what he thought we were at first. We're not some raging fundamentalist church. And he had talked to people in the uh, district office and they said, look, they're just cinnamon rolls. It's not like, you know, they don't even have a Jesus loves you sticker on them, right? They're just cinnamon rolls. You can accept them. And and he and I, he got to share with me that the reason he had originally said no is because there was a valued member of his staff team who was uncomfortable with it. So it wasn't necessarily his thing. He was just trying to do right by the staff member. And I kind of heard that and I'm like, well, I might've done the same thing if, if I were in his shoes. So as we talked more, what we came to the conclusion is, is that you can disagree and work for the common good. And I think that's a huge thing right now. You can disagree with somebody about important issues, but still say, we're going to work for the common good in our community. And in this case, the common good just meant supporting teachers, parents, schools, and that kind of thing. And if we can only work with people who are like us, it's going to be a sad, sad world we live in. Uh, so I, we left there saying, hey, if either of us hear things about each other that sound negative, we we know to go to each other, right? Come together now and figure it out. And while he and it's not like he and I are good buddies or anything, we haven't talked since then. We did have a come to a mutual understanding and respect and and I I just think that's the way the world should work. Let's sit down and talk it through because when you talk it through with somebody, man, you usually come to some kind of consensus pretty easily. Well, that that's my segue, Keith. Like I the deep, deep irony of this episode and the conversation we're having is when we first, you know, you sent your book over and I'm, I'm reading it and I'm, are we going to have a conversation on that? And I had this moment of like, you know, there's a couple of things by reading the book. I can tell you we're probably not seeing eye to eye, but that's totally normal. That doesn't bother sure. me at all. Like that's completely normal in any situation. <laughs> but then I was like, there's this thing like, oh, but if somebody, if somebody Googles the wrong thing, if somebody decides I just gave a platform to the wrong voice. What happens uh -huh. to me? That It was completely tribal. I was uh -huh. worried about whether or not I'm aligning with, and all we're having is a conversation about having conversations. And the deep <laughs> irony is I was hesitant to even have a conversation about having conversations because of the very problem that you were pointing out. Like it, It's that real. And this yeah. isn't just like those idiots over there. This is hard to navigate in our world because you're one breath away from getting canceled or you're one breath away from supporting the wrong thing or mm -hmm. and and what we need to somehow recapture is this ability just to talk to each other. 
That's right. I mean, there's so much to say there. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. It used to be that the fundamentalist Christians were the separatists, like the hardcore Bob Jones sure. uh, fundamentalist. If you were on the stage, like if you're a pastor who was on the stage with Billy Graham, they wouldn't come to your church. Not because they wouldn't go to see Billy Graham. They wouldn't even go to see anybody who talked to Billy Graham. And so that's kind of what you're talking about. Like somebody, if they didn't like me, might be upset with you because you talked with me. But now that same fundamentalism that used to be within the Christian church on the, you know, hard right wing, and I don't think you or I have any desire to, you know, be labeled part of that. That's not us. But that same kind of fundamentalist attitude is now outside the church. So now that people who would never step into a church are just as fundamentalist, just as separatistic about who that they want to cancel, and and here's the thing. It's easy to demonize people you don't know. Uh, there's a, a sermon I gave at our church a few months ago, and I was talking about Luke 9, and it's a story of James and John wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans. And I, you know, get there in just a second, but when I was setting it up, I was saying, look, we live in a country more and more in bubbles. We live in a social media bubble. Uh, we live in a cable news network bubble, but we also live in geographical bubbles. It's been shown, uh, if you'll just look a little bit on Google, you'll easily find that now about 57% of Americans live in what is called a landslide county. And a landslide county is a county in which one uh, party, either the Republican or the Democrat presidential candidate, won by at least 20 percentage points. So a landslide county is where everybody there, or most everybody there, at least 57% of the people all think alike. And now 57, or, or yeah, now 57% of Americans live in landslide counties. Well, that's a radical change from 20, 30 years ago. That has grown, we've sorted ourselves by uh, who we vote for. So now we live around people who think and vote like us. So we don't know people. So now you take that to, to, to James and John. They don't know any Samaritans. They don't go to the same markets. They don't live in the same town. They don't worship at the same temples. So it's easy for them to say to Jesus, hey, do you want us to call on fire on these Samaritans? Because they don't know them. They had heard a lot about Samaritans, but they didn't actually have relationships with them. Now, think of how crazy this is. Of course, Jesus rebukes them. They go to Jerusalem. And, and James and John thought that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. It, it turns out he went there to die for the Romans and, and also to die for the Samaritans. And so now imagine post-resurrection, Here's James and John worshiping maybe next to some of those same Samaritans they'd wanted to kill a few weeks earlier, maybe a few months earlier. Mm. So, so now the, 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 the one in Jesus has unified that which the culture said could never be unified. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. But now they're worshiping the same king and those differences were relativized like we talked about earlier. So I'm just convinced that there are a lot of people who don't know somebody, maybe you're pro-life and you don't know people who are pro-choice, so it's easy to demonize them. Or maybe you're a Democrat and you don't know people who voted for Trump, and it's easy to write them off as some crazy racist. But when you get together and you talk to people, what you find out is, yeah, you disagree. I don't want to minimize the disagreement. That's real. Right. I'm just saying that it turns out, though, that, that while they're wrong, they might not be wicked, that that Trump supporter that you disdain is serves at a homeless shelter and that a uh, progressive that you think is out to lunch is the one who brings your family a meal when you have a new baby. 
We have a lot in common and we can work around what we have in common and show respect to one another where we have differences. Yeah. And you, you speak to this super well. I won't even like, you just nailed it. So I won't even read these. You talked about this on page 121. You gave practical examples of this on page 178. But then there's just two two pages later of 124, you say this, and it, it plays into what you were just saying, Keith. Um, you guys say the church also has one thing going that elite associations of the wealthy do not. It's free. Unlike country clubs and gated neighborhoods, the church welcomes people from every socioeconomic bracket and prides itself especially on helping those in need. I experienced this constantly as a pastor. And one day I've had breakfast with the CEO, lunch with an ex-drug addict, happy hour with a middle manager, dinner with a guy on parole. In a Bible study, I'll see a single mom struggling to make it, sitting alongside a retiree living off of a 401k, both learning from each other, serving each other. I've led small groups with college dropouts and PhDs. When our elders gather, I see people of different races, with different family backgrounds and wildly different vocations. None of this is remarkable. It's just the church. Like, Man, when you, I feel like the church has this opportunity that we're missing. I don't mean that in some overly dramatic way either, but like, I feel like the Eucharist table has this superpower yeah. that we've like forgotten about. Like you just mm-hmm. described the gospel being this thing that has the ability to transcend these ideologies. Like it, it's just sitting right in front of us, the ability just to love one another, to love our neighbor to love our enemy, to love our enemy neighbor. I'm trying to make that a thing. Like we have these enemy neighbors, like they're actually our, they're actually our brother and sister, but they become these tribal enemies. Like, man, mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's, there's, there's something there. Um, what, what would you say to this idea that the church really has an opportunity in front of us? What our culture is experiencing right now is complete fracture, and the church has the opportunity to show them that we can have unity together, not agreement. So I don't mean unity that we all think alike, but we can love one another and work together toward a common good. So this is a moment where the, the, the world has this big need. The church has the solution. But the question is, will the church demonstrate that the solution is real? In other words, that King Jesus brings together that which nothing else can, that, that, that Christians are a band of natural enemies who found common love in Jesus and therefore learn to love one another. Can the church demonstrate that to a watching world or will the church be just as fractured as the world is? Mm. And you're right. It's a it's it's an opportunity that could be squandered. And right now, it seems like we're doing at least a lot of places are doing a decent chance of a decent job of squandering it. And yet, there are other places where you really hear that the church is embracing people from all walks of life. Everyone's welcome, mm. and churches really do reflect the community that they're in. So it, it's one of those moments in history that I think you know. 20, 30, 100 years from now, people will look back and say, how did they handle this opportunity that God gave them? But we've got the solution. There can be unity in Jesus. And like you said, everywhere has division. It's hard to be in a country club. It's hard to be a part of a political party. You, you, you put up walls that separate you. But in the church, there are no walls. Like we said earlier, everyone is welcome into Jesus's tribe. There's no moral superiority because it doesn't matter if you're the dropout or the PhD, the single mom or the the people have been married for 50 years. It, it doesn't matter in the sense that we all stand before the cross and we all are needy and we all need the grace of Jesus. That's the only thing that can rescue us. So here's our opportunity to find that common ground in the gospel and be a light to our to our world. 
on that idea of moral superiority or uh, maybe intellectual superiority as well. You you say on 168, uh, there's no shame in admitting that you don't know. It's humble and that's Christ-like, um, which is really fun to think about and consider the implications of that statement. Um, so my personal experience is the more I learn, the more I feel like I know less. <laughs> right. And uh, you talk about that a bit in the book. Um, how important is that idea of being comfortable with what we don't know. When you pretend to know things you don't know, you uh, further the mission of the political tribes. So Mm -hmm. let me see if I can explain that better. Um, There's a lot of things in our world that seem really basic that we've been around forever. You know, in our life, we've experienced it a thousand times, a million times. And we think we know how it works, but we really don't. Like just your toilet flushing and how it works. Well, I don't know. I'm not very mechanical. So when I open up the back of the toilet, I kind of get confused on how all these pieces work together. You would think as much as I've been around a toilet in my years, I would know how a toilet works. But I I really kind of don't know as much as I think I know about it. And, And when I recognize how little I know about it, then I'm willing to investigate. I'm willing to dig in and learn. I'm willing to listen to other people, to seek out opinions of people who disagree with me. Like maybe it's about race or maybe it's about gender or maybe it's about sex sexuality or maybe it's about money or whatever. But but what happens is is that the tribes take advantage of our unwillingness to admit what we don't know. So they come along and they fill in the gaps for us and they tell us that we need to uh, kind of toe the party line. So like, like you take a bunch of issues like climate change, abortion, tax policy, race relations. You could list a bunch of political issues that are the hot topics of a given day. And if you tell me where you stand on one topic, I can tell you probably what you believe about all the rest. And that's because we don't reason our, our way to an issue. What we do is we say, what does our tribe think? We're, we're so unwilling to just say, I don't know what I think about tax policy. I should really look into that and learn more about it. Instead, we start arguing for our vision of tax policy that turns out it's not even ours. It's our tribes. So we, we don't reason to our, our convictions and our beliefs. We just follow our tribe and then start arguing and defending positions that we don't even know what we're talking about, to be frank. So I I think a willingness, a healthy humility that says there's a lot I don't know. And so I'm going to hold my convictions on things I don't know. I'm going to hold them pretty loosely. I'm going to be very open to changing my mind if I get further information. I think that's a good question for people is when's the last time you changed your mind on something significant? Mm. And if it's been a while, that might be a sign that something's not right. Yeah. So kind of along those same lines, what do you feel like is the call to action out of this this book and larger conversation, just not the book itself, but like what's the call to action right now for this conversation at this time and place in history? Where, where, what's the first few steps? Where do we begin? Well, of course, what I want everybody to see, uh, whether it's December 29th or the day after the election or a year from now, mm-hmm. in every moment of our life, I want us to see that Jesus is on his throne, that Jesus is the king, that he's not interested in being president. Uh, 
That would be a huge demotion for Jesus. He's the king of the universe. It's an eternal reign. He doesn't want a four-year term. And that he's got this whole uh, plan that he is executing, his loving, compassionate plan. And so we don't need to be caught up in our political tribes where we're arguing with one another and defining ourselves by being a Republican or a Democrat or whatever party you align with, that, that we, we uh, uh, can love our neighbor and love our enemy. And, and like Marty said, love our enemy neighbor. We can, we can accept people from every walk of life and welcome them into our church to follow Jesus with us. That we can be a light in our community to show them that there's healing of the division that everybody is experiencing right now. But that's only going to happen if we acknowledge that Jesus is king, that he reigns. And I, I think Christians have forgotten that. And when we've forgotten that, that's when we get more anxious. That's when we get more uh, fearful. And when Christians get fearful, then they are easily manipulated. Well, everybody, when they're afraid, is easily manipulated. And you can see that's what politicians do to us. They, they say, oh, you should be very afraid of X. And we're the person who can uh, protect you from X. Just, just give us your money, give us your vote, and we'll make sure that you win and, and you're never hurt by X. Well, Fear is, is, is not something that should be in the mouth of a Christian. Now, I get we're all sinful, and so we all have normal fears, but we should be resisting those. That's why do not be afraid. Fear not is repeated so often in the Bible, because if we realize that Jesus is king, not only are we not anxious because God is in control, but we're also not afraid. Therefore, we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood before King Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, look, you might throw me in this furnace or you might not. God might save me. He might not. But I'm not panicking here. The king was panicking. He was had all the power, all the control, everything. And he was furious, in turmoil, couldn't sleep, had all these crazy dreams. But there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're poised. They're calm. They're courageous because they know their Lord reigns. And they have this eternal future this, this to, to look forward to. So everything's not caught up in the moment. So I'm not really here to say that you should try to vote Democrat or Republican or, or not vote. Or, hey, that's really not my heart. Uh, my heart, Patrick's heart, is for the church, is for Christians to put Jesus on the throne, you know, to recognize that he's already on the throne and to surrender our life to him and to live, to be that non-anxious, non-fearful, confident, poised, calm, trusting presence in the middle of our anxious, chaotic, fearful world. So we had this, um, this dam of a midterms that was holding back the flood of what will surely be the craziness of the next presidential election. Um, that is, is flooding uh, the Valley now, I'm sure. Um, so in, in light of that, and maybe even beyond that into the future, what are, what are some of the things that you hope that we start seeing more among the people of God? Well, besides putting Jesus on the throne, I, I hope that we see ourselves being um, radically generous to those on the outside, the people who've been marginalized, the people who've been forgotten. Uh, that's one of the things that, that I think um, will uh, minimize tribalism. So another, another quick story is that uh, we try to make Christmas and Easter times where we do big giving campaigns to groups outside our church who are in need. And one year we just said, look, people in our county have medical debt and that medical debt is causing them to 
declare bankruptcy and have all these other problems that come with declaring bankruptcy. What if we raise some money to pay off medical debt in our county? And our church was so radically generous. They gave $435,000 in 10 days. We ended up paying off nearly $50 million in medical debt for people below the poverty line in 38 counties in our state. In another time, we, we said, how many people in our city are on the disconnect list for their utilities? And of course, that list is what you think it is. If you don't pay soon, you're going to be disconnected. And that's obviously a problem. And so we just said, what would it take to uh, uh, pay all those people's bills so they're not on that disconnect list anymore and their family can stay wherever they're living? And our congregation gave a close to another $450,000 that we were able to pay off that list and give more to uh, ministries in town who keep people from getting on that list in the first place. And I just think that radical love and radical generosity toward our neighbor, it makes a difference because our church doesn't care that, I mean, I'm sorry, our community doesn't pay that much attention when we give money to a Christian organization. But when we give money to the needy in our community, and when we say, we don't care if you're black or white or Latina or Asian, we don't care if you're gay or straight, we don't care if you're a man or a woman or Gen X or Boomer or Gen Z, we don't, we don't care about all that. All we care about is it, do you have a need? And we want to help you meet that need because that's what Jesus cared about with us. He didn't come saying, are you a Republican or a Democrat? He, he just said, who has a need? I've come to meet the need of those who are sinners. And, and we just want to meet people's needs. So we got to send letters to people saying, hey, we paid off your debt because Jesus paid off ours. And we just want to share the joy of what it means to be uh, uh, somebody who's found the grace of Christ, the love of Christ. So I hope that we can put Jesus on the throne, you know, and I say put him on the throne. I, I mean, recognize that he's already on the throne, that, that we can have non-anxious lives, non-fearful lives and a radical love and generosity toward people in our community. Uh, I, I think of, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm reading through the Apostolic Fathers right now. And that was one of, that's one of the common themes I keep bumping into and in what the early church community was doing in the midst of struggling with a whole lot of things I I have problems with like all the Gnosticism and everything. Like they were, they were committed to this radical generosity. Like they talk over the course of 200 years, they just keep talking about taking care of the widows and orphans. Like this was such a major part of their program, their curriculum, their, their identity, like their tribe, this tribe had something to do that, it just it just drove that agenda. So I love that that idea. Imagine where they got that. I mean, they got that from. <laughs> wait for it. The Bible. <laughs> it it kind of hits that theme a lot in the Old and New Testaments, beginning to end. It, it kind of makes a big deal out of that. It had to have been a focus group. Come on, the text. No way. No, absolutely. Well, as we kind of close this up, uh, Keith, what what are some of the things, anything else we need to know about things you're working on or stuff that's out there? Anything else we need to know about Keith and Patrick or or anything like that? Well, I appreciate that question. You know, we have the book Truth Over Tribe that uh, people uh, can get in Amazon or wherever they get their books. And we also have a podcast by that same name. And sometimes Patrick and I have a conversation about a cultural topic and try to take it from a Christian perspective. Uh, and, you know, that always leads to some people emailing us, our listeners, you know, I dissent on this or that and questions and follow-ups. It's, I, I, I think it's interesting. P- Christians need to find a place that they can talk about these issues because if, if they don't, and I, I don't think Sunday morning's the place, but, but if we don't talk about these issues, then why? 
what happens is, is that instead of being discipled by Jesus, we get discipled by Tucker Carlson. Or instead of being uh, uh, discipled by the scriptures, we get discipled by the pages of the New York Times. So we try to take these conversations, these hot topics and have conversations about them. And a lot of times what we do is we bring on the smartest people that we can find. And it's been crazy how many people have come on and had conversations about really interesting topics that Christians need to think about. So that's the podcast, Truth Over Tribe. We also have 10-minute Bible talks, which helps people just have short devotions, you know, but on their way to work, while they're exercising, mowing the lawn, whatever it is they're doing in their, in their busy life. But uh, we enjoy doing all those. It's fun and alongside of the rest of our ministry here at the church. That's great. Well, it has been a pleasure having you uh, on to talk about this. Um, it is a, a necessary conversation, an ongoing conversation, uh, a relevant conversation, um, and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for joining us. Sorry that Patrick couldn't come along, but uh, we're glad that, that we got to have you here, Keith. Well, you know, all the private school kids out there missed Patrick, so you'll have to catch him <laughs> some other time. Uh, I think Marty would like Patrick. I bet you they would talk. I wouldn't even understand half of what was happening. But I, I really just want to say in all genuineness and sincerity, thanks for what you guys are doing. I think it's super important. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there. My son, one of them, his buddies, people in our church, and I'm sure a lot of other places who are benefiting from getting in the scriptures and uh, digging into text and being shaped by God's word. And, and so thanks for what you're doing as well. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, you guys can find, uh, you listeners can find the uh, link to the book as well as uh, both of those podcasts in the show notes. Um, you can get a hold of Marty on Twitter, I guess. I don't know. We're at another one of those points where I don't know what's happening with Twitter. Um, but he's at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. You can find more details about this podcast at BaymontDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.